This is the Future of HR podcast, episode 46. I really do think that the performance management systems as we know it are dead. And really, instead of calling it performance management, we should start talking about motivating performance. Because if people is your product and people need to be motivated to do their best work, why are we looking back at feedback versus looking forward at how we learn? And that's the challenge we have right now. If you ask people, most people fear that process. They don't get any benefit out of it. And they're looking for what the outcome is, whether it's pay, performance, whatnot. And those things actually go against what the key should be, which is learning. What is the best way to motivate and drive individual performance? How can we redesign performance management to be more effective? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott. And this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. My guest this week is Tammy Rosen, a recognized thought leader, influencer, and senior HR executive. Tammy has spent her career transforming the impact of human resources as a senior executive for some of the world's largest and most recognized companies, including Goldman Sachs, Apple, Luminar Technologies, just to name a few. Currently, she's the chief people officer at Pagaya, which is a financial technology company that enables financial institutions to expand access to more customers through its artificial intelligence network. Her forward-thinking approach positions HR as a catalyst for transformative change, shaping the future of organizations. And Tammy is also not afraid to have a bold point of view. And in this episode, she calls out her belief that performance management is dead. We also discuss why she thinks of her career in four phases and why you should too. What she learned being the first chief people officer at three different companies how she has replaced performance management with a continuous learning cycle that focuses on learning from successes and failures, how being open to receiving feedback can positively impact your career, and why she believes we have changed where we work, but not how we work, and much, much more. Tammy, welcome to the Future of HR podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. And thank you for having me today. We are excited to have you on the show and really hear more about your career, how you think about HR, how we add value. I think it's a unique perspective. I know the audience is going to love it. But let's start off talking a little bit more about your career journey. You spent 16 years at Goldman Sachs and worked your way up the organization, ultimately becoming the divisional HR head for the investment management division. Tell us more about your career at Goldman and what made you successful in that role and at that company. Thank you for asking it's rare you get to share your full journey with the world, and so I'm excited to do that. But I think about my career sort of in four phases. The first phase was finding my passion, and that was right out of school and getting to my next phase, which will be Goldman, which is finding the right culture and mastering your craft. And then the third phase was taking risk and driving change that you seek, and that's sort of my Apple, Luminar, Atlassian, Pagaya phase. And then hopefully I'll get to phase four one day where I could be just about give back and helping others. But thinking about phase one, which is before I got to Goldman, was really, I don't think people would know this, but I was pre-law, worked at a public defender's office during college, and realized that's not what I wanted to do. I wasn't dreaming of being an HR leader. It wasn't in my cards. And 
I kind of fell lucky into a job at Nowest Bank in a training program that taught me to be a loan officer. So completely opposite from what I went to school, not sure what my direction was, loved crunching numbers and meeting people. But honestly, I had no mentors and I had no advisors. And I really had to look at what was in front of me and see, was that the right opportunity forward? Did I want to be my boss, the team leader of loan officers, or did I want to stay in banking? And I met a friend at her interview and I was waiting in the waiting room. And by the end of my wait, I was had talked to like five or six people and didn't realize they were interviewing me for the job that my friend was being interviewed for as a technical recruiter. And I was like, wow, this could be an interesting thing. And at the end of the time waiting for her, they gave me the offer. And I thought to myself, wow, maybe I should do this because it's this or structured finance or loans. Hmm. Maybe I'll try this. I didn't know anything about technical recruiting and knew nothing about Wall Street. And I just took the lead. And I knew being a technical recruiter, I could be entrepreneurial. And so that was sort of like finding my passion. And But going through those steps is what led me to Goldman. And it led me to Goldman because I felt technical recruiting doesn't just have to be placing people at a job. It could be helping them go to a job and then drive their career. And I could do something like that. But I didn't have a partner. I didn't have money. And I felt I needed some more. I needed more work experience. So I took this contract recruiter role at Goldman Sachs. And that was what set me on my path. And going to phase two, finding the right culture and mastering your craft. When I found Goldman, I found home. The culture worked for me. It was entrepreneurial. Uh, imagine Goldman is a pre-IPO at this stage. HR is not really built. It is embedded in each of the divisions as an admin function. And there was so much greenfields ahead. And I just knew that this was going to be the place for me. And honestly, I, you can see I'm a failed entrepreneur. I didn't find the partner, even though I had some money. And I stayed 16 years, over 16 years to help build and create HR and the function there. That's incredible. And what advice do you have for people to follow that passion or to find the passion? Because it can be challenging when you're early in your career. You know, we ask people to figure out what they want to do when they're like 15, you know, and they get to college and you have to figure this out, pick a major. And sometimes you don't really know until you kind of get out there. What would be your advice for that? And how would you find your passion? Well, I'll say it's always easier looking back than looking forward, right? The rear view mirror is always easier. But there were, there's breadcrumbs along the way. And whether it was Nat West, where I loved crunching numbers, but I felt more passionate about seeing the loan, the loans that I was giving to the actual companies and what they were doing with it. That was my first clue. Second clue was when I went to the recruiting firm and saw that I got joy when I placed someone at the job they wanted, not the job I was forcing them to do because it would have given me, you know, the next fee or whatever. And really understanding that's where my passion lied. And then realizing that I wanted to create an outcome that was better for what people had today. And so all these experiences give you those little breadcrumbs that you could put together and lead you in the right direction and eventually helps you to get a North Star of what you like and what you don't like. But it's not that alone. You also have to find a place that has the right culture in which your values align so that you could actually do your best work. And you obviously did that at 16 years at Goldman Sachs, continue to move up, which is an incredible company. And think about Goldman Sachs. What else made you successful there? What did you learn from that experience? Because, you know, it's such a well-known and respected organization. It is. And I'll tell you, way back when, it was very different. While respected, wasn't at the height of what it is today. So it's hard for people to fathom that. My first day on the job, I didn't even have a desk, a telephone to actually get a resume. And then today, it's this huge, much more well-oiled machine. 
But the advice I'd have for people is in looking at my career, I took a path that might have looked very straight, but it wasn't. It had a lot of curves and moves. And the first thing I did was took on things that no one wanted to do. So every day there are things that you can do and people are asking, can you help with this? Can you help with that? And most people are like, no, I'm going to focus on my job and what I have to do. And I did focus on my job and what I had to do. But every so often I'd pick up something like, well, we need someone to put together a database for people data and use business objects and do some programming. Can someone do that? I'm like, well, I don't really know how to program, but I'll pick up a book and I'll see what I can do. And I then ended up creating the first what we call performance management review system at Goldman out of curiosity and interest while also still continuing to do my job. And that was great. Now it didn't yield a result in that moment. But if you do those over time, you end up building a whole portfolio of experiences that when that next job is there, you're ready. I love that advice because I think that's something I tell people as well is to do things others won't do. It sets you apart from everybody else. And it shows they'll take initiative and there may be a project that people have ignored for a while that's really important or it's hard because you got to bring stakeholders together or do analysis and it's not in your day job. But by taking initiative and making those things happen, like you did by creating a performance management system, people are like, wow, hey, who's Tammy? What is she doing over here? Exactly. Well, after Goldman Sachs, you joined another iconic company, Apple, as an HR leader where you actually served as a faculty member responsible for teaching programs centered around the Apple culture. And I remember reading about what Apple was doing around that yeah. Steve Jobs mandate to make sure people understood what Apple was all about. Tell us more about that experience and what you learned working at Apple. Apple was a very unique organization. And I think what's interesting, you know, I was talking about the phases of my career. We went from finding my passion to then mastering my craft and becoming a real true HR leader and learning through taking on things that I didn't want and not taking no for an answer and making no, not now versus never. And really learning the magic of feedback. And then finally, with all about building relationships. And so going to Apple was very different because when you've been at a company, as long as I was, you become the company. You, you live, breathe everything. And so going to the phase three of my career and taking a risk, this was not an obvious thing to do. I lived in New York, worked at Goldman Sachs to go out West and then take on going into a tech firm in a very senior HR role. Kind of surprising, right? And most people at least in my area at the time, weren't moving for my job. It was kind of rare for that. And the funny story there was how I bumped into Apple is that my coach at Goldman told me I needed to network. And I needed to get other people in my network that were not Goldman or Goldman alumni. And so I got introduced to someone at Apple to help them with a military program. And after that, the head of HR at Apple called me and said, hey, would you like to meet? And that's what led me to Apple. And I remember I got the offer trick-or-treating with my kids and husband and looked at my husband. I said, we can't do this. That's like uprooting everyone, your career, whatever. It's just not going to work. And he looked at me, he goes, opportunity of a lifetime, Tammy, we're going. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. Okay, we're doing this. And I didn't even think about, will the culture be right for me? How will I be able to be successful in this new environment? You know, any of that. I was just so excited about the opportunity. and. And I took it and I went full force. And what was great about it was it was a great learning experience and humbling too, because when you come from New York finance to California tech, there's such culture change there and things don't operate the same way. And you have two very strong cultures that have been very successful, but are very different. And what worked in one doesn't work in another. And that was really a truly humbling experience. 
We have a supportive husband, and that's terrific. And that was the right answer for him to say that to you <laughs> and make those sacrifices because it's always a sacrifice to move families for big opportunities. But it sounds like you were pretty agile and working through that. Talk more about the experience teaching culture and the importance of why Steve Jobs wanted to instill yep. the lessons of what Apple was all about before he obviously passed. For sure. So Apple University is a very unique organization. And honestly, I started in Apple HR first, but the head of Apple HR ran both Apple University and HR at the time when I began. And Apple University was created because Steve fundamentally knew he was not going to survive his cancer. And he wanted to make sure that Apple would continue to innovate, not by doing what they've done in the past, but really using that as lessons learned to, to innovate in the future. And so Apple University is not a learning and development organization. It is an organization centered around culture and using business classes to actually evoke conversation to see the tensions that may happen in the culture for people to have conversation around that and then to actually make the change they want to see. Now, Apple University was designed with faculty members in mind that came from top universities. I was not one of those people. I was an HR practitioner. And so when I was asked to come in to be a faculty member, imagine I was running two large areas at Apple. It was internet, software, and services, and the software teams. I had a large HR team and a large remit. And now I've taken this risk to just drop all of that, have no direct reports, and learn how to be a business school professor in the Harvard model. It was the most humbling experience <laughs> ever. And you had to learn to teach somebody else's course, teach it back to them in order to, quote, earn your clicker. And I uh, thank to the many faculty members that helped to mentor me and hundreds of hours of learning. I was able to do that and, and really got to enjoy having conversations with all of the many amazing people at Apple, helping them to think about how to manage in the culture, how to take the culture to the next stage and how to innovate. It's such a great experience and kudos for you to learn how to be a professor and earn your clicker. And then after Apple, you stayed in tech. It sounds like you love tech and became a chief people officer for several high-tech companies that were scaling for growth, including where you are now at Pagaya. Tell us more about what you love about tech companies that are scaling for growth and how does that compare to being in these bigger companies like Goldman Sachs and Apple? Yeah, it's a wonderful question. And I think my experience of going and really doing something different in Apple University and becoming a faculty member is where I realized very clearly that HR was kind of stuck in these, in the dark ages, I like to call it, and needed a massive reboot. HR was focused on making trains run on time and managing risk, not thinking about motivation and how to help people do their best work and on behalf of the company and for the company. And that was, it was clear to me that I could not stay in, in a big organization and affect the change I wanted for HR. And the best way to do it would be to go to startup and to really, because there would be more appetite and there would be no infrastructure yet and you'd have to build it. So that was why I did it. I've been fortunate to be the first chief people officer at three companies. And that in, it, in itself is kind of a hard or a tall order because there's no blueprint. There's no rails created yet for you to drive on. And so it, it was really about going back to that beginner's mindset and trying to test out those ideas. So what I like about it is the ability to innovate and to think differently and to flip things on its head. And then if it doesn't work, try it again and really do it with the minds of learnings that I've had 
being at two amazing cultures that drive performance and taking some of the best of those things and then twisting it and changing it differently for like these new companies. Well, I admire you because being the first chief people officer, you know, one, of course, you're putting programs in and setting the tone. But in my experience, what you're really helping to do is also educate those founders, the CEOs, the leaders around what good HR and people practices look like. Do you have somebody who's starting their career? Do you think they should you know, go to a startup if they have an offer between a startup and maybe a more established company? Where would you start your career if you could start over again? I don't think I would change the way I started my career. I think there are benefits to both. But as I was talking before about the phases of your career, first find your passion. And if you're not sure, going to a big company helps you get to see a lot of different things and have the infrastructure and resources to do it. Where if you go to startup right out of the gate, you're actually building and flying that plane at the same time. And sometimes you're the most experienced person with no experience. There's pluses and minuses to both. I wouldn't change how I did it because I think the framing and the learning that I had at Goldman University, I'll call it, because it was really my MBA, that helped me to apply and learn and think differently and to really come at it from a different angle. And I think the key thing that you said before is how founders and who don't know what they um, had to help influence and get them to think about HR. And I don't start from there. I look at what we do in the people craft as people is our product. And we're developing a product strategy with people that's going to empower and make that business better. And that starts with learning the business fundamentally. I knew nothing about LIDAR. I knew nothing about SaaS. I knew nothing about, I knew a little bit about FinTech. Okay, a little bit. But knowing all of those things, you have to go and immerse yourself and then identify those key pain points that you see and then design around those things to find solutions. And sometimes those are easy things that you can do. And sometimes they're really difficult. And the value you bring is saying how people can power what the company is trying to do and the mission they're on, the goals they have, and linking those every day. Well, I like the way you're thinking about this so like almost as a product roadmap for HR and thinking about how are we adding value? Mm-hmm. What's our MVP, a minimum viable product that we're putting out there? And how we're going to continue to improve on that. But then how does that obviously help the business, right? That's the context. Exactly. So you've obviously been in tech for a while because you're talking that language. We're not in the give back phase yet, but we might be in the challenging assumptions phase. My next question. Yes. You've been known to say that performance management is dead. What do you mean by this statement? Why do you think this is the case? Uh, I really do think that the performance management systems, as we know it, are dead. And really, instead of calling it performance management, we should start talking about motivating performance. Because if people is your product and people need to be motivated to do their best work, why are we looking back at feedback versus looking forward at how we learn? And that's the challenge we have right now. If you ask people, most people fear that process. They don't get any benefit out of it. And they're looking for what the outcome is, whether it's pay, performance, whatnot. And those things actually go against what the key it should be, which is learning. And feedback, we all know, is imperfect. It's biased. It doesn't encourage people to listen if they're not feeling it's right and it's not put in the right environment. So I would like to flip it on its head, and I have been flipping it on its head, especially at Pagaya, and thinking about it from our culture of learning or continuously learn as a value of ours and saying, how does learning happen and how do we create those systems to encourage that? And what I did was recently look up the definition of learning. And it was it's interesting because the first definition is to acquire knowledge, skills, and experiences. 
Now, when I think about that definition, there's such a misconception in there. It's kind of like you're telling me that, like, that's college. You know, here's, here's information. Take a test. Okay, you acquired learning. But that's not learning. Learning is really about what you do once you acquire that knowledge, experience, or skill and how you apply it to that situation you don't know differently in a way to make a better outcome. And so if that's what learning's about, then let's design something that encourages that and put it into an environment that really motivates performance. And so what we did at Pagaya is we called it the continuous learning cycle. We have it two times a year. And we started out with first, managers, employees need to align on what they accomplished. What did that employee accomplish during that year? And think about that. Then think about how you learned through it. What were your successes? Why were you successful? Do you ask that question so that you can continue being successful? Athletes do every day. They perfect their crafts, right? But we don't inform its management. So in motivating performance, we must, right? And then, then the second piece is like, where did you fall in your face and fail? Okay, people don't like to have that conversation. Why? Because they think there's an outcome as a result of it. But if you create an environment that is not a rating, not tied to promotion, then you'll see people will be more willing to say, let's dissect where it didn't go well and let me see how I can help you. And that's the third piece of it, which is this whole thing is designed with where were your successes? Where did you fail? Where did you succeed? And what you learn from it? And then how can I manager help you employee and the company so that you can, when you put out your next three to six months of what you're going to do it well, and then I'm going to support you in doing it. Now, ironically, the first time we rolled this out, I was shocked. We did one week of this quote self reflection. And then we had two weeks of manager reflections and conversations. In the first week, we had over 90% of people complete it without even having to chase by this, which is crazy, right? And then two weeks after, over 90% of people actually had those conversations. And then I showed up in Israel to talk to some of my colleagues over there and was out one night and a bunch of colleagues came up to me and said, hey, Tammy, when's the next CLC? And I said, what do you mean? They're like, it was so lightweight, so impactful. I learned. And guess what? I'm looking forward to the next one. Okay. Wow. We're on to something. So I was like, this has to continue. It has to be centered around learning. And if we get people in a learning mindset, they're going to do better work. And by the way, feedback's embedded in there. And we have to understand feedback's imperfect. And if we just go with the old tools of 360 and try to say, this is what you did versus saying, hey, wait, here's a theory about why you're not successful. Let's talk about it and let's have a dialogue and try things out. And learn. What I love about what you're doing there, Tammy, is that a lot of times I feel in HR, we will just change the title. And really, we don't change the process. We didn't change the ratings. We didn't change the mechanics or the intent of the process, but we did put a new branding on it. It doesn't really work. And so it sounds like you really have not only brought learning to the core, but really were able to not only communicate that in an honest, authentic way that managers said, yes, this is about learning and it's going to work for us. And I'm, I want this process to, to be more insightful and help my development versus thinking about, I'm going to get a rating or a bonus based on this and totally, et cetera. Well, you know, it's interesting because you said before that getting the C-suite or your founders to be thoughtful and thinking about people stuff. In this case, I didn't have to. There was this culture and understanding of learning and every one of them, the entire management team, did their CLCs with their people. And 
I remember our founder coming out and saying, you know what? This was one of the best processes I learned too. And what this created was a dual contract with people that learning is not one direction. It's both. And learning what your employee needs and how you can help them is just as important as learning what you need to do differently. That's really an important point. I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of times we don't have that upward feedback. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious, how are you tying it though to, of course, what a lot of HR people are saying is, well, I get it. That sounds great. Learning's awesome, but I have to give a bonus. I have to yep. give a merit increase. How are you guys tying that back to the compensation and the rewards? Well, obviously, feedback is part of that and feedback's embedded in the continuous learning cycle, but we have different processes to manage pay and promotion and they're separated and at different parts of the year. So while these things are input, they're not the direct correlation is how we've done it. It's interesting because um, I want to go back a little bit to why this design came up and and talk a little bit about um which kind of ties to my career a little bit. I think one of the things people forget is that feedback is a gift and you have to be open and willing to learn about it. And, and most of us aren't. And I wasn't probably earlier in my career. And there was a moment in my career where I was not given the job I was supposed to get. And I went home that day and said, I'm going to leave Goldman Sachs. This is ridiculous. I've been waiting for this opportunity. It's here. I'm the right person. Why am I not getting it? And I asked my manager and she was like, because people are afraid to give you feedback. And I was like, wow, what am I doing that is giving people that? And I said, can I talk to them and ask them why? Because I was going to be, it was my first head of HR for technology. And they said, sure, go talk to them. So I went and talked to the division heads and I said, why, why do you feel like you can't give me feedback? And their answer to me is, I'm afraid that you'd get upset or I'd hurt your feelings. I like you too much. And I was so surprised. And I said, wow, um, don't like me so much. Throw the meatball at my head. I could take it. And if I cry, get upset, ignore it. But if you don't give me feedback, I don't know when I can't change. And they both looked at me and they're like, okay, we'll do that. And they gave me the feedback. And then after they gave me the feedback, I said, please give me a trial in this job. And if I can't take feedback or give you the sense that you, you know, it's okay for you to give it to me, then you should, you know, terminate me and that'll be it. And they did give me the opportunity. And three months after, one of them came up to me and said, we did you a disservice. Not only can you take feedback, you are open to it and you change and you make it better and you make it easy. So advice to people is first, be welcoming feedback. It is a gift. Even if you don't want to hear it, it is a gift. And if you create processes like we have with the continuous learning cycle, it just becomes easier and easier to give and to get it if you create those environments that welcome it and invite it as well as give it, even when sometimes people don't want to hear it. That's a great story. Thank you for being candid and sharing that. You turned kind of lemons into lemonade by saying, wait a minute, let me have that feedback and let's have the conversation and prove them wrong. So kudos to you for doing that. I think a lot of us, you're right, we don't, we really don't want feedback because it, it can be hard. It hurts our egos. But if you want your career to progress, asking for that feedback is really important. Early in your career especially, but all phases of your career, how can I be better? How can I support you better? I think that is, is really, really important. And pay it forward. I'll tell all the leaders out there, it is hard to give feedback, especially for all the reasons we just talked about. I don't want people to 
get hurt. I like them. I don't want them to think differently of me, all that. But if you create that environment and you give it to people over time, they'll give it back to you. And then they'll also grow and learn and be willing to come to you with their failures and look for advice and support. A lot of the conversation right now in HR is about the future of work. It's always centered on location, return to office mandates, hybrid, fully remote. That's all we seem to sort of talk about, whether it's in the news or LinkedIn, you hear a lot about this. Sure. But what you said is that while location of work, you know, while that's changed, how we have worked really hasn't changed. Tell us more about why you believe we need to change how we work and what that means for you. Yeah, for sure. And it, and it is a passion of mine. And some of the work that I did at one of the past companies was really setting up and thinking about what the value of a different work environment can be. And we were all tossed into this strange experiment called the pandemic. And we just kind of switched to um, Zoom. And we thought you could do the same thing over and over again. But offices were designed because there wasn't technology to give you the ability to convene and meet. And and now we are so much more technologically advanced that it, you don't always have to be in an office. And, and when you, you kind of go binary to in office, out of office, you're missing the whole point because the value of creating the future of work was to hopefully get talent in places that didn't migrate near your offices and build diversity and inclusion. Second was to help integrate people's work and life and give them more freedom to actually manage those things concurrently and easier. And then it can't have those two things unless you have intentional moments of collaboration. And those things can't, in my opinion, be only remote. And they have to be asynchronous, synchronous, in office, in person, and orchestrated. And, and people focus more about the location because that's the easiest thing to change. But they forget you have to rethink the norm on how you work and why you work and what's going to make the best for your team. At Pagaya, we're not a hybrid work environment. I like to call us, we're an in-person culture with flexibility. We have two main offices, Israel and New York. We have some remote workers, so we do get the value of getting talent anywhere. We do allow people to work in office and also work from home, which allows them to integrate their work and life. And then we are very focused about these intentional moments of collaboration before the pandemic, if you looked at the biggest budget item for any company, it was their offsites because they needed to collaborate. Well, how is that possible when you're in the office every single day? You're not collaborating intentionally. So now it's about really thinking those norms of what's essential to be in person, what's essential to be in a meeting versus, you know, shared documents, what's essential to be, you know, private personal work on your own so that you can think and actually create. And I think most companies have gone only a half step. And that's why you're seeing this need to bring it back because collaboration was not defined. Some really great insights. And I think especially when you talked about when we all were in office before the pandemic, we're spending all this money to go offsite to collaborate. We all would say, oh, let's go for two days and go rent this fancy place to hang out. But that's because you're right. We weren't intentional about it. And so... I think you're right on a lot of this. I also feel like where the emphasis needs to be, and I certainly don't have the answers on how we work differently. We've really let a lot of tools take over, whether you're on Slack, on Teams, emails, text messages. I think the best leaders have really figured out, like, this is how we're going to operate as a team. This is the most efficient. We don't have to have 15 meetings. We can't be in different time zones and get the work done. 
But I think a lot of companies need to spend more time thinking through and be intentional about how do we want to work and not just go back to the old playbook because there's some really new ways to do it. Yeah, I think you have to make a, um, you have to be very bold in this move if, you're, if you decide that it needs to be fully outside of an office, right? And I intentionally didn't say hybrid or remote. If you fully don't want to be co-located in an office, you have to really go all in and know that's going to be many years of perfecting those norms and unwinding other norms. And I think that the patience factor is the issue. And are you truly going to burn the boat and not do it the way you did it before? Or are you only going to take a half step? And when you take a half step, you have to roll it back because other things break down because you didn't really think about that ahead of time. But I want to call out that fully outside of an office is not for everyone and fully inside an office is not for everyone. And there are companies that it makes it work. And you have to really look at your culture, your values, and how you get work done, those processes, those decisions you make, the way in which you need to operate. For Pagaya, um, many would be like, why didn't you make it like Team Anywhere, which you helped to create? The reason why is it wouldn't work. Just like taking Atlassian's culture wouldn't work for Apple and Apple's culture wouldn't work for Pagaya. You have to really think through what you need in order to deliver on your mission and then create that environment to do it, which includes where you work, but also, more importantly, how you work. Well, I think you nicely summarized why I think this topic will be something we continue to talk about for a long time, but it's just going to vary by company. And you have to accept that that's part of their culture and the context of them being successful, and that's why they've made those choices. And yep. as an individual or a candidate or a team member joining, you know, what's really best for you? Do you prefer to be in an office, hybrid, remote? Everyone's a little bit different. And that's going to be part of that flexibility, which I think is the big trend. But the big change that we have to really take account for is that employees now want something different. And if you say you're going to be in an office three days a week and somebody doesn't want to, then maybe they're not the right employee for you and you have to be okay with that. It's disappointing when it happens, but it's important to know that because Asking somebody to do something that doesn't feel right to them is not going to motivate them to do their best work. And then they won't, and they won't be successful. And you won't be successful as well. You know, Tammy, you have been really successful on pushing what I would say are really innovative or progressive ideas and getting them sold into organizations. How do you do that? And what advice do you have for other chief people officers who are trying to push a new way to performance management, a new way to help the business? Yeah, no, it's not easy. And I guess it's something that's learned over time that you have to start with really understanding the business and the business that you're supporting and the need. I've definitely also failed at this as well. So you learn from your experiences and you perfect them. But, you know, think about it during the pandemic. There was a big taste there that we needed to care about people for wellness and for resiliency in a very different way. And it's easy to go and say, let's put in a program like this or pay money like that. And, and those things don't usually work to start with. Here's a problem and here's, um, here's money you have to spend to do it. Rather, it's better to go and like really investigate the core pain point and then understand the cost of what you're doing and what it means to actually make a better outcome. So for example, at this one company, I looked at sort of the prescription drugs cost. I looked at the the rates of people that were out of the office due to sickness and saw that we were spending so much in those places. And if we just started to build in the muscle of resiliency and wellness, we can really, you know, 
do better outcomes, which means more people in the office, more productive and happier. And so I thought about what that was. I created the business case. I showed the savings. And then even with the spend that we were going to do, it would definitely counteract it in, in multiples after. And so we created a resiliency week. We talked about sleep. We talked about mindfulness. We talked about connectedness. Then we also created a walk this way challenge. So simple, such a simple thing. Just get people out walking with a competition. Not only does it break camaraderie and connectedness, but then it also gets people healthier and people then start to lose weight, eat more healthy. And so there's a win-win here, but you have to build that case and go to your readers and say, here's a challenge, here's a problem, here's what it's costing us, this is what we can do, and it becomes a win-win. And make that a business imperative, really, that becomes more important than just the HR agenda becomes a business agenda. Yeah. In most HR cases, like we do things because we've always done them and we don't actually take a look and with a kind of fresh perspective and say, how can we do it better, more efficiently? I've said before that performance reviews are dead. They cost so much time and money for organizations. People spend months and months and months, calibrations, efforts, and we don't see people getting better. And who knows how people are feeling about whether the outcomes on pay and performance work. And that's why I think we got to decouple these. But if you look at that process in itself, you can streamline it, make it more efficient, make it lightweight and effective and still have the same outcomes or even better outcomes, actually. But it's about really sitting down and diagnosing that and then going and showing the business imperative about it that we could save time, money and have more effective output. Tammy, last question for you. What is one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? I think it's about always being a learner and continuing to learn and linking that to motivation. They go hand in hand. In this world where AI is helping us make better decisions every day, we as HR leaders need to be adapting, evolving, creating inclusive environments that motivate our people to do their best work. But you can't do that if you're looking at the way we used to do things. And that really means breaking down those barriers. And learning's hard. It's humbling. I use the analogy of you're a skier. You've been an amazing skier your whole life. You can go down any part of the mountain and it's almost like you're on autopilot. And now you're asked to be a snowboarder. Wow. It's a humbling experience, the whole different modality of going down the mountain. And frankly, you'll be on your butt for two weekends and you may just get down the bunny hill. But if you stick with it, you have another way of going down the mountain and that will give you different insights to how to create and innovate with a different mindset. So you have to break down these barriers of complacency, challenge your inherent biases, continue to learn and motivate our people to do the best work. I think this is the true cultural shift that will help individuals be better and be happier and more successful, which will then in turn allow organizations to be successful. Well, continuous learning. Love that analogy, Tammy. Thank you so much for being on the Future of HR podcast. Tremendous insights. And I think for now, we all know performance management is officially dead. So thank you for that as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. Thanks again to Tammy for sharing how she has shifted from managing performance to motivating performance through continuous learning cycles. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. And if you enjoyed this episode of Future of HR, be sure to subscribe and share our podcast with at least one other person. This really helps us grow the podcast and helps with our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. 
We'll be back next week with the one and only Bev K. Bev is a legend in our field, and her ideas on career development, engagement, and retention have had a lasting impact on our field. In fact, ATD and two other organizations have given her a Lifetime Achievement Award, and most recently in 2022, I4CP gave her their Industry Legend Award. It was a true pleasure to talk with Bev, and in our conversation, we're going to talk about career development, talent mobility, and the right way to conduct stay interviews. You won't want to miss this episode with the legend. Thanks again for listening to the future of HR and being part of our community.